Blackfoot, Navajo, Hila, Aleut, Choctaw, Sioux, Pueblo, Shoshone, Apache, Cree, Muckleshoot, Chippewa, Mohawk, Seminole, Creek, Pochunk, Crow, Ojibwe, Cherokee, all American Indians and Alaska Natives. We need an accurate count for the 2020 census. Remember, your tribe does not provide enrollment numbers, and this is the count of everyone living in the U.S. in 2020. So it's up to you, and it is very important, as the census data is used to inform the funding of resources and programs in our communities. We, too, use the data for grants and aid, and it will affect the next generation. Shape our future. Start here. Learn more at 2020census.gov. Paid for by U.S. Census Bureau. We were rolling down this road in... Anbar Province. Three personnel carriers with with 16 of us on board. All of a sudden, there's... There's a huge explosion. We knew right away... It It was an IED. The first vehicle got got wasted, and those guys took a... A huge hit. Then we started taking sniper fire and RPGs from the hills. In today's military, women face the same dangers as men. It's pretty amazing. We made it out alive. But when they come home, women veterans confront a whole different set of challenges, like unique health care issues or not receiving respect or even acknowledgement for serving in harm's way. DAV understands the problems women veterans face, and we can help. Many DAV advisors are female veterans. They've been there, and they're ready to provide expert guidance. DAV fights to get you the health, disability, and financial benefits you were promised and earned. If you're a veteran, visit DAV.org for free help. And hello. Welcome to American Dream Time. I am Robert Doc Barham, and we are here today with a good friend of mine, a new friend, so to speak, but a fast, fast friend, too. He is here today with us on American Dream Time. His name is Alan Sidley. And Alan is actually an only child who was raised by a single mother on the mean streets of Vienna, Virginia. She is still a single mother, in case whoever's reading uh, this is single and interested in dating an older lady. But let's not make this about me, meaning Alan Sidley, but about her. Alan journeys to bring laughter to those who need it and a suitable stepdad to take home. A comedian, an improviser, and a lyricist, Alan is a jack-off of all trades. Alan's humor is dry and a little wet for perspiration, usually. He opened the door for Sinbad and toured through Eastern Europe in the summer of 2018. Not for comedy, just a fun fact. He did, however, recently headline the Church of Satire Comedy Club and has opened at Laugh Index Festival 2017 in 2018 and 2019 and was a member of the Unknown Comedy, Unkosher Comedy Tour in 2018 and 2019. Despite those flubs of mine, those verbal yeah. gaps, Alan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Doc. Yeah, how are uh, how are you doing today? I'm doing really well. Uh, I feel like a lot of projects that I'm working on, both in the comedy realm as well as some of my own personal goals, uh, just been generally feeling a lot better this month than I was last month and just hoping to keep the momentum going, man. It's like as long as you uh, you know, keep putting the time in, keep seeing results... Well, from the, from the time that I've known you, I, I think that you have a really good work ethic in terms of uh, 
wanting to push things forward in your career in comedy and improving as a comic. And that's one of the reasons why I invited you to be a guest here on the show today is I, I wanted to talk with you and ask you some questions about comedy. So today we could say that uh, is about the letter C and the word is <laughs> comedy. Um, tell me a little bit about um, what you're doing now as a as a comedian, as a producer, as a business owner, that sort of thing. So uh, right now I am in the mix of putting on slash like organizing and hosting a lot of different comedy shows. So on a given week, I'm doing shows over at a, like an open mic on a Monday that's over at Hops and Shine and that's in Delray. So that's like every Monday. Then Tuesdays, I got a variety of shows that I'm booking and performing on. Anything from this showcase I do over at Busboys and Poets. And that's like a little bit more high profile, bit of a nicer room uh, from anything else to I do another open mic at another location, a showcase at another location. So just a combination of shows that I've been organizing and growing uh, throughout the week in mostly the Northern Virginia area, a couple in D.C., like one in Maryland. So I keep myself pretty busy by uh, organizing and promoting and booking those shows as well as the working on my comedy craft, writing and working on material. No, so you're not exactly James Brown yet. You're not the hardest working man in uh, show business yet, but not it's yet, definitely but I'm getting there. I'm it's, it's obvious that you're working pretty hard right now. How'd you get started in uh, in comedy? Uh, so going way back, we're probably talking like five or six years ago. Uh, I was interested in stand up. It was something I'd always wanted to do, but I felt like I wasn't ready. So I actually started off by doing improv comedy. Uh, I took a couple classes over at the DC Improv with one of the best teachers of all time, Chris Ulrich, and. I just loved it. I love just being very in the moment, just uh, feeding off of the creativity and the spontaneity of everybody else in the room. We had a couple of really good classes. Once the class was over, I was like, I need to form a troupe and keep performing. I think that first graduation show, and we got to do it on the big stage of the DC Improv, like, I killed it. And it was so much fun. And it was like one of the most fun nights I've had actually doing comedy in general. That was your, that was your first did you say, I, I misheard you. Did you say that was your first? That was probably like my first like really fun night doing comedy. Oh, and comedy. you killed it. Wow. It was, it was improv, man. And I was hot. Like it was like, because it was short form improv. So it was a lot of smaller games. And it was just like, you know, feed me the rock. But it was like, instead of feed me the rock, it was like, feed me the line. Let me go on stage. Uh-huh. Say a quick quip. And it was, it was a fun night, man. It was just like one of those nights of just like, just joy. And it was before I had any serious aspirations of doing comedy. So I was like, ah, oh, this is, I want to keep doing this. This is fun. Yeah, I remember my uh, my first time on uh, on stage. I, I spent a lot of time beforehand preparing to go on stage, and it was an open mic night. I probably spent something like six months worrying about getting all <laughs> of the like, little pieces in place. Like I want to, yeah, yeah. in my mind at that time, I was, gosh, I was in uh, very early 20s, if, if uh, maybe even 20, 21 years old. And, and I, uh, in my mind, I thought, well, I've got to have just the right clothing and just the right uh, material. You were and, a little obsessed is what you're saying. Yeah, I was. <laughs> I, and I, Actually, what it was is it was probably a kind of procrastination that was based on sort of fear of, of uh, failure. But the truth is it served me well in the long run because right. I felt pretty comfortable when I got on stage until I stepped to the mic. <laughs> and then I had this sort of Einsteinian relativity sort of experience right. where time seemed to slow down and it became really kind of scary for me 
And I just, in my opinion, it seemed like I bombed. But when I got off stage, I felt like I had an absolute certainty in my mind. I just knew in my heart, in the core of my being, that I can do do this. I know I can do this. I know that exact feeling. That was my... uh... My first experience as well, I think. Yeah, because I, I remember I, I walked to my chair and I realized it, it's really just a matter of learning the skills and the structure of the you know the craft and the business. I know I can do this. It was a wonderful moment. Yeah. So it's nice to have an experience like that where you where you just kill on stage for your first time. Right. And I mean, since it was improv, nothing was prepared. Everything was just like, let me not overthink things, which... When you're a comedian, that's kind of your job to overthink. Things. Yeah, yeah. But uh, similar to you, I had a very similar moment for my first time doing stand-up where the analogy I like to use is like I prepared to play a basketball game and then I got on stage and realized it was soccer. Like similar muscles, you're still exercising, but the rules and how I felt about it once I was up there, just the realizations I had, I was like, no, this is a slightly different game. So let's learn how to play soccer instead of, putting time in to play basketball. Ah, okay. Well, now, how does one get good at comedy? <laughs> oh, man. Uh, first off, once I actually figure it out, I'll definitely <laughs> let you know. But I have a theory. And it's a combination of everything from hard work to just really being uh, open to feedback, right? I think a lot of people get stuck in a certain mindset where they're like, to get good, I just have to perform a lot, right? You have Malcolm Gladwell with his 10,000 hours. 10,000 hours, yeah. So people are like, oh, maybe if I just perform this five-minute set for 10,000 hours, I will be good at comedy. You will be good at performing that five-minute set flawlessly, being able to take anything that's thrown at you. But beyond that, you're not really getting, uh, exercising other muscles, muscles like, you know, incorporating things that aren't working, uh, the feedback from the audience, doing longer sets. I think you have to do a combination of performing a lot, writing a lot, tweaking a lot, and being able to be comfortable in those moments on stage to improvise a little bit. Did you say tweaking? Tweaking, yeah, not uh, the drug kind. Okay, I was going to say I got to do. I have. That's what I've been missing this entire time is my my the right prescription. I haven't been doing enough meth. <laughs> but it's like here's the thing, you know. I think you see your average comedian, your average aggressively pursuing comedy comedian, probably go up multiple times in a night, even in the DMV, it's possible, and they're doing that same set, and if they're not changing anything. They're not even, maybe I put my first joke last, last joke first. Maybe I try a different tag. Maybe I set up with that joke, see what happens while I'm in the moment. Maybe some things will come to me based on the audience reaction. If you're not doing any of that, you're just getting good at performing those jokes, which is, a, I think, a very small view of like what, as a comedian, you're trying to ultimately do, whatever that is for you. For me, it's you know put on these specials do some hour-long sets, get really good at that part. Because I think the more material I work with, the more I can feed off of like myself and the audience. And I think that's like, I think that's what you got to do. You got It's cheesy, but you got to work smart and hard. You can't right. just do yeah. one. You can't just do one. So it sounds also like what you're saying is that you, you need to stretch yourself. Yes. Keep moving into the unknown mm-hmm. and proving that you can do it. I, I know for myself that, um, that most comics would probably agree. I don't know if the folks who are not, comedians are not into the comedy world know this but that first 
that first set, that first five minutes, first first ten minutes or so, really is a big deal. Yeah, because it's the thing that gets you out there. It gets you onto the stage. It moves you to that first slot of the MC and host. Mm-hmm. It really is a big deal, and it can set the it can set the tone and the pace for for your future work. Now, so you yeah, write every foundation. day. You write every day. Not always, but when I do, I do. <laughs> uh, like as of recent, I have started writing every day. But for me, it's a little different. So right now in my process, because of the project we're working on, I'm working on trying to get all the, all what I think are my better jokes uh, laid out and scripted. That way I can look at the sequence. I can look at it and see the timing of the jokes, maybe improve them. So if you consider that writing, I would say it kind of is because it's really compiling all my notes, organizing it, and then punching it up a little. So that's one aspect. And then in terms of like pure joke writing, I don't really sit down and do it. I know this might sound like, uh, I don't know, some kind of ego thing, but like a lot of those jokes will just come to me at some point, especially with the wordplay and the puns. Uh-huh. Just throughout my day, based on something I'm seeing or thinking or feeling, it's all about just capturing those jokes and making sure I'm writing them down instead of just being in my apartment being like, ha, 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 ha and then not doing anything. <laughs> so it's that now that sounds like you're saying about being prepared, being open to receive in a sense. Because to me, sometimes, you know, I remember asking myself as as a stand-up comedian, full-time, I would go through my day and and I'd ask myself, what's funny about this? Mm -hmm. And then I'd notice that either right then or shortly thereafter, something would pop into my head, almost like I was downloading something, like receiving something. Yeah, so you were like primed yourself to that situation, and then maybe later on in the day, you were while you were washing the dishes, you're like, oh, that's what was funny. Right, right, exactly. Yeah. So now, you don't write every day, but you do in a sense, because you're doing these other things. Rather than just sitting down with a pen or or a a phone or a computer, you are organizing your stuff. What other kinds, what are the kinds of things do you do to, to improve your comedy? Are there other, do you read uh, any anything about comedy? Do you watch comedy films? Do you what other sorts of things? I will say I'm probably the number one slacker in that realm. Yeah, I uh, definitely think it would be a good idea for me to read more comedy based stuff, just based on some of the greats and their thoughts and philosophies on comedy. But uh, I would say you know some reading here and there. I listen to a lot of music. I probably I definitely consume more music than comedy, so that definitely gives me like a lot of uh, thoughts in terms of either like subject matter or kind of like the flow, right? As comedians, we have a certain flow. Uh I listen to a lot of rap music so I can like see a lot of the flow and have that sort, just to absorb that as like a reference point. Not that I'm taking the rap song and turning it into comedy, but just like using that. Because I think, I don't know. I've heard some comedians, some of the younger guys and gals be like, if they listen and watch too much comedy, they'll accidentally steal things, steal jokes or steal pacing. And that's my excuse for not doing it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you know, I, music for me is really inspiring. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, if I can, if I'm in a, a bad state or a low state or something like that, I can put in some music, listen to some music and it will change my state uh, within a minute or so many times. Definitely. And when I get into that, that more flowing kind of enjoyable state, mm-hmm. I find that uh, it's easier to find things humorous. Yeah, no, it's uh, that's a really good point. I think in terms of writing jokes, you have to be in that humorous state. I found for myself, 
if I'm feeling kind of low and I'm trying to write jokes, they really just come out as like depressing, dark thoughts. Right. <laughs> Maybe there's a punchline once in a while, but you, you have to kind of be in that zone. And I think that's what's helpful in terms of me doing all the joke organizing that I'm doing is as I'm reading these jokes, it's kind of like putting at least my toe or my foot in by reading this, the mental state to when I wrote those jokes. Now, have you ever gone back? One of the things that I did is I, I decided not to throw things away. Hmm. So I'd, I would write things down. Sometimes I'd go back and I'd, I'd have an experience like you did. And went, well, that's really just more of a kind of a, not even an interesting observation. Right. <laughs> it's just, just sort of a thought there. Yeah, and, yeah. But then sometimes I'd go back and I'd be like, ah, I, I think I know what I was trying to get at there. And that would then sort of reignite the inspiration. And that, the, the thing that just laid there fallow would then become the source for a good joke. Have you ever had that experience? Yes. I can't think of any offhand, but I think what you're saying, don't get rid of anything. Just archive it. Put it to the side, whether you're really good at keeping notebooks or you need to use the online notebooks like me. Everything is worth keeping. Yeah, that's uh, that's one of the things I do is uh, I'll write in uh, like a paper notebook, but at the same time, I'll use uh, I'll use an app and create folders and organize it that way. Mm-hmm. Well, now, uh, is there anything that you'd say? What would you say about what, uh, any don't do's? Hmm. Don't do's just average comedian on an average night. I feel like I've got so many ideas in my head. Can you give me a couple parameters? What sure. are we looking for? Well, let's say that some of the folks who are listening to this might be interested in doing stand-up comedy or learning more about the kind of mind of comedy, so to speak. Okay. What would you say don't do? I can think of an example. Yeah, of- yeah. I, that's a great question. I would say, um, you know, as a person who I considered myself somewhat funny before doing stand-up comedy – you, ca- you have these ideas of what comedy might be. You think, oh, these are the things I say around my friends and family, and they laugh at that, and a lot of that stories. And I think there is this idea that I told this story to my friend, and they laughed. Let me just try that on stage. The audience doesn't know your friends. They don't know you. They're probably not going to laugh. The punches aren't there. I think that's – you don't really learn how to be a comedic storyteller, especially your first time. So I'd say – one of those is that. Try not to tell a story. I tell people if they're going to do a story to try to reverse engineer it. You want the jokes to tell a story. You don't want the story telling the jokes. It's probably a little bit too much to say for that. Uh, <laughs> I'd say, yeah, stories. Uh, and I also think less is more. Everyone's like, oh, I got to do a five-minute set the first time. Let me make sure I memorize like. As a person who runs shows, if you have two minutes of great jokes, I will want you to come back every week. Sure, because it's two minutes of really, really strong material, right? which is better than 10 minutes of very weak material. Exactly. So I'd say those are the two things I see the most. Thinking you have to fill your time and going out there and being like, so I was at a party this past weekend with Jim and Bob, and you know Jim, he's always drinking a lot, and Bob, he doesn't drink. And then at that point, we're like, we don't know Jim and Bob, we don't care. Well- I remember when I was writing early on, I was really hard on myself. Mm. So if I wrote 10 jokes Mm -hmm. and 10 jokes weren't funny, I would be so hard on myself. I'd get beat myself up, get down on myself. I'm I'm really not funny. I'm not cut out for this. And then one day I had something that totally reframed my my take on writing. Yeah. And it was listening to Jerry Seinfeld of all people. Mm. And what happened is he was talking about he gave a metaphor of writing comedy. Um, 
he related it to the story of the baseball player Ted Williams. And he said, Ted Great Williams, story. do you, you know the story about Ted Williams batting over 300 for a lifetime yep. and then going to the Hall of Fame? Mm-hmm. And he talks about that as being a 70% failure rate, mm-hmm. and yet the guy's still in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, yeah. He says, so nobody really worries about in the long, jo- in the long run the jokes that don't work because you don't keep them. Mm-hmm. You, they, you just keep accumulating those three out of ten jokes that work, that, that kill, and before you know it, you've got your two minutes, and then you're five, and then you're 15, and then you're 30, and then you're 60, and that sort of thing. And that, that really freed me up to be able to write and not worry about, not edit myself beforehand or worry about whether it was going to be funny. Yeah. Uh, to jump on your point, that was a great, great point, by the way. I think it's also important to remember that I think writing and editing are two different processes. I think... If you're in a writing mode, you write all the jokes, you don't worry about how funny they are until maybe a day later or a week later when you're like, let me punch this up. Because, I don't know, for me, there's a lot of probably like feelings that go on while you're talking about these jokes. So it's like you've got these different head states kind of bouncing off each other. One's Uh like, this is funny or this is mean or this is funny or this is depressing or this is funny or this is corny. And it's not worth having that fight when you're writing the joke. Now, maybe down the line, you look at your tape and you're like, I'm not getting laughs on this joke. Oh, that's right, because this is really just depressing or mean and not as funny. So that was one point I had. And then also Ted Williams. I watched that documentary on Netflix recently, and that actually inspired me to be uh, more working harder on the craft. Yeah. Because that guy like was the hardest working guy in the Major League Baseball in terms of perfecting his swing he had like the best swing in the game people still say best swing in all of baseball is ted williams and then the amount of work that he did in scouting opposing pitchers and knowing what they were going to throw before a game just let him do his thing when he was on the mound a lot of people don't a lot of people think oh he was just so gifted he was gifted but he also worked really damn yeah, hard he put the time in yeah yeah now what is uh What's your your take on the like the current state of comedy today? Because uh, you know I'm I'm a little older than you, and and I've watched the I watched stand up comedy as a as a craft and as a business uh, change over the years in many ways. But what's your what's your take on it today? I feel like we're in this weird state of new school and old school bumping heads together. Yeah, I think so. I think we've got a lot of the older folks who have been doing comedy for a while, and they've been kind of in the game and they necessarily especially if you're like more towards the top of the bracket you don't have to worry about it as much you know people who are going around headlining all over the country probably not necessarily going to need to start gathering followers on social media and worrying about how many twitter people they have or instagram people they have but i think if you're a newer ish comedian there is a much bigger push for this social media gathering and networking that never existed. Sure, yeah. And, and then you also have people being able to now when you say out. when you say uh, when you say networking, mm-hmm. you mean that in terms of between comics or comics and their audience or you know sort of d all of the above. I think it's all of the above. Yeah. I think it's putting jokes out there to maybe build a following, and then also being like, "Hey, Jimmy Bob, I'm going to be in Pasadena on a Tuesday. Can I get on a show?" And that you would not have been able to contact that person before social media besides the old school of like, hey, I'm just going to show up and hope I get on. I feel like the, hey, I I just want to get on days are becoming smaller and smaller. 
Well, now, um, are you uh, th- are you hopeful that things are going to continue to go in that direction? You want? Do you like that? Is that? Uh, I don't necessarily like it as much because I do feel like it's a another aspect of this job that doesn't pay anything, which is putting <laughs> out pretty decent content on Instagram or Twitter to get like you know whatever your five to a hundred likes. It's, but I think it's necessary now. I think that's what's at least required until people figure out what the the next thing is. So I don't necessarily like it, but I am going to stop fighting it personally. And just as I'm out there performing or writing jokes, working on the craft, just making sure I'm capturing what I'm doing, throw a picture up, throw a click, quick clip up, and boom, just, you know. Not one of those people that really loves Instagram. Like, my girlfriend likes Instagram more than me. We're watching TV. She's scrolling through, looking at pictures, looking at videos. I'll be honest. I'm probably the worst friend to have on Instagram. I'm not looking <laughs> at your stuff. I'm putting a video out there. If someone comments, I'll engage. But I don't know. Maybe that makes me selfish. But that's that's the way I view those apps is really just somebody wants to contact me, I'll play. But besides that, I'm just putting stuff out there and hoping for the best. Fingers crossed. So when you put a joke out there like that, do you ever find that someone will take your joke and say it? Do you worry about that at all? Or Man, people were t- taking my jokes when I just say them on stage. So, right, of course. Right. Yeah, uh, yeah. But here's the thing. I feel confident that, A, I can do the joke better because I'll see people do pretty similar to my joke and I'll be like, I'll look around the audience and I'll be like, this doesn't land as well as my joke. I still feel okay about that. And I think some of it's accidental. So it's like, you know, there's so much stuff you're consuming. But yeah, uh, I would say, except when it's like a video, I think there are certain things I post on either Instagram or Twitter that I think are more readable jokes. I try to take that part of my brain and be like, this is a joke somebody would read. That way, if people are taking it, they're taking it for, it's got like a shorter shelf life or it's not as not as impactful versus like, let me just share my best jokes in written form and then you can put it into your notepad and use it. Well, now, a lot of times I'll see on social media, whether it's Instagram or Facebook or what have you, Twitter, that when you post a joke, you'll get a lot of feedback in the form of comments from other people. And it will come across like tags to your punchline, mm-hmm. right? Tags to your joke. Yeah. What do you do in that case? Do you ever use those those tags or ask somebody if you could have that tag or just leave it as is? I feel like what you're saying used to happen a lot more than it does now. I don't know if it's just Facebook is dwindling and everyone's moving to other platforms, uh-huh. but I have found that people aren't necessarily commenting on it as much. People just want to comment on things that upset them. So maybe if you say <laughs> a really upsetting joke, they'll jump in. But yeah, I think uh, there are some cases where that has happened in the past and I've definitely looked at it. And if I like it, I'll ask the person if I could use it. They usually don't care. Yeah. There was a joke I one time did, uh, and like I said, these are silly jokes. These are the ones that I'm not necessarily going to do on my like big night, but on certain nights they work, where it's like, uh, you know, my friend was in jail recently, and we couldn't talk on the phone. I've heard they have really bad cell service there. But um, cell <laughs> service, yeah. Uh, and then somebody was like complaining, like, yeah, you know, just not enough bars, which is like, you know. It's a pretty cute tag. Sure, right. So I think if I'm doing a set where I'm going to throw some of those whimsical, cornier jokes in, I'll use the bars part, which I didn't write myself. Got it. 
Well, we are actually going to take a little break here, and we will be back in a couple of minutes. I'm here with Alan Sidley. We're talking about the letter C, and the word of the day is comedy. You are listening to Radio Fairfax, located at Fairfax Public Access at the Alliance Center here in Merrifield. And you can check us out on the web at fcac.org. I'm Robert Doc Barham, and this is American Dreamtime. We will talk with you soon. There are hundreds of children in foster care in Fairfax County. Many of them leave the system without a permanent family. Right now, there are children in foster care who are waiting to be adopted. Kids Save Fairfax Weekend Miracles is a new program that gives you the opportunity to host, mentor, and advocate for these children to find the permanent homes they need. There are many ways you can make miracles happen. Visit www.kidsave.org or call 703-683-5437 to learn more because every child needs a family. A college education is one of the best tools for building a better life. But for the thousands of American Indians living on reservations, that path can be difficult to navigate. More American Indians live in poverty than any other racial or ethnic group. Often forced to choose between buying food and paying tuition, less than 5% of American Indians can afford to go to college without help. Since 1989, the American Indian College Fund has helped thousands of young men and women begin a path out of poverty as students at tribal colleges. In a tribe, educating one student can empower an entire community to create jobs, address health problems, and preserve their culture. As more American Indians see a college education as a way out of poverty, full-time college enrollment continues to rise, along with a continued need for support. Help a student, help a tribe. To learn more, please visit tribalcollege.org. A public service message from the American Indian College Fund. All right, I am Robert Doc Barham, and this is American Dream Time. You are here with me and with my friend Alan Sidley, and we are talking about comedy at Radio Fairfax, which you can find at TuneIn Radio. Alan, what is the most ridiculous thing, like the just the most unbelievable, outrageous, ridiculous story, the thing that's happened to you since you've been doing stand-up comedy? Whew. You know... I was hoping when the first ridiculous thing happened that that was going to be the most ridiculous thing. The but, first one? But unfortunately, things kind of keep trying to outdo themselves over time. But I, I will say, I think the first thing that happened that was ridiculous might still stand, might still tell the test of time. So, uh, as I mentioned earlier, I put on comedy shows. And... I had just landed a nice venue. This was very early in my comedy career. I was probably like a year in, not even a year in. I was still just doing a couple open mics a week. But because of my improv connections, I found this place that was interested in us still doing comedy, still interested in shows, whether it was improv or stand-up. So fast forward a couple months later. I am organizing a stand-up comedy show, and I had booked a few people on it. I was trying to do like a pretty professional show where I had, or I was hosting. I had a guest, a feature, and a headliner. 
which is kind of funny to do when you're still only like six months into the comedy game, but it was a nice place. I thought it would work. To the let's see, fast forward to the day of. I'm at the venue and I'm starting to wonder like where my headliner is. Like I haven't heard anything from him. And I was probably too early in the game to start panicking. I was like, oh, he's probably just running late. And I get this message from him on an email chain saying, hey, man, getting some conflicting messages. Is the show still on? From the from the from the headliner from the headliner. And I think the only reason he sent me that was I took a picture of the room and was like, five minutes to show time. Who's excited? So he got that notification. Facebook was still popular back then. And he responded to this email chain. So I take a look at the email chain and somebody had created a fake email account of me using my picture from Facebook and sent an email to the other people performing on the show saying that the show was canceled and really? did not show up. And I still think that's the craziest thing that's ever happened to me. Wow. that That is really bizarre. That's like insanity levels. Someone created a fake email account. Posed as you. Yep. And then tried to cancel out the show. show. What what ended up happening? Uh, I mean, I'm 99% sure I know who it was because they were the person that didn't show up that night who was booked on the show. And the show went on. The headliner ended up coming through and we had a really fun show and I very much enjoyed it. But I learned to uh, watch my back before I crossed the street. Wow. That's really something. Now, I, you know, I've had so many uh, unexpected and strange experiences. I remember, for example, many years ago working with, uh, you know, Bobby Slayton, who is uh, known as the pit bull of comedy. Okay. And I remember um, we're working at the punchline in Sacramento. And um, I, I think Bobby is just really, really funny. So I'm in the green room and uh, I get the call to go on stage. I do my time and uh, I see... Just before I'm about to bring him on stage, he's at the back of the room at the corner of the bar. Mm-hmm. And it's I can tell it's him even though it's in silhouette. And there's a guy next to him. And the guy stands up and cold clocks him right in the face. And he My drops goodness. on the ground. <laughs> and the guy turns 180 degrees and sprints out of the club, throws the double doors wide open, and I watch Bobby get up. He's in the back of the room, and if you know Bobby, he's got this really deep, gravelly voice, and he's he's from New York, and I watch him get up, and I hear him scream in the back of the room, Hey, somebody get that guy! <laughs> and he sprints after this guy across the comedy club room, through the double doors, and then those guys just the two of those guys throw down and it's this surreal looking experience where it should have all of this noise but it's happening through the double doors where you can see it so you can't hear anything at all okay and then <laughs> um i get a um i'm sitting there going what do i do i right. want the, it, the, <laughs> the place is sold out and when he yells at every single person there's over 200 people does this sort of 180 degree turn around away from the stage where I'm at just right <laughs> turns around <laughs> to find out what's going on and I am clueless as to what to do I have no idea anyway I start talking trying to get the crowd to turn around and pay attention to the show 
because I don't know whether to stop the show or, you know, the show must go on, right, right. that kind of thing. You're looking, and nobody's giving you a signal of any kind, and they're just like, I yeah, hope I, Doc I, figures I, it right. out. <laughs> I got nothing. I'm on my own trying to figure this out. And when the people finally get sort of turned around, and they're looking at me again, and I'm started back into my set, I see this waitress, this young, she's an attractive waitress, she sort of makes her way through the audience and she has a, the, you know, the brown circular trays that they have. Yeah. And she has a glass in, on it, uh, like a highball glass and a napkin. And she uh, comes up to the stage and I had not ordered anything to drink. <laughs> so I'm now even more confused. Right, right. So she looks at me with a smile and nods and hands me this drink, which is it looks like it's water or, or seltzer or something like that. And then hands me the napkin and kind of gives this eyeball at the napkin, like, look at the napkin. And I grab the napkin and I look at it and there's one word in capital letters written across the napkin. And it says stretch. <laughs> <laughs> and so I'm sitting here going, OK, I am actually and you know what it's like sometimes when you when you are the act before a major headliner like that. It's it can be real a real workout. Yeah, and uh, so people paid a lot of money to see th- that person, not, not necessarily you. And you. At some point, they're like, "When are we going to see our right. guy?" <laughs> this is just the guy before the guy I came yeah. to see. What has this guy done? Right. So I did stretch, and the audience turned out to be remarkably giving and uh, and appreciative. And um, then uh, I, I think I did maybe about ten more minutes. I I look up, and in the same pathway where the waitress was. Uh, I see Bobby way sort of wading his way through the, the crowd and he's got a drink in his hand. He looks completely uh, unflummoxed. And uh, <laughs> I just start my ladies and gentlemen, put your hands together for Bobby Slayton. He comes up on stage and just destroys the room. Oh, I'm sure. What, what a, just the, <laughs> the strangest story, strangest thing. Now, what other kinds of things have, have happened to you? Oh, man. Uh, Do tell as they yeah, say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, there's so many, but I can. It'll be easier for me to list them in chronological order. <laughs> I think. A D B C. Yeah, yeah. yeah. A, no, no, no. Uh, I did want to comment on your story, though. I feel like you being put in that situation, although it's terrible, prepares you for the next crazy thing that happens. It does, right? Because you can, you could never prepare for that situation to happen. There's no flight simulator <laughs> for no, for that kind of thing. There's no stand up one hundred and one. Uh, your headliner gets punched in the face. What do you do, class? <laughs> right. right? Yeah. Uh, and, I, oh, man, there's so much. I think one, and, like, some of these are just really bizarre to me. First show I had put on, it was a, one of my professional shows over at Tyson's Beer Garden. Sold out crowd. Like 55, some people in the room. Uh, I had Tommy Simbazo headlining. I don't know if you know him, but he does the DC Improv, and he's on 98 Rock like uh-huh. every day. I had... Uh, Mike Moran, who's one of my favorites. Uh, Yasmin Al-Hadi, who I've talked to you about uh-huh. incorporating uh-huh. her. And then Ryan Nazer was hosting. So it was a great show. I was going to jump in and do some time, which I did. And that was amazing. Whatever. But before the show, there's a guy who's like, you know, looks like he wants me to talk to him. You get that feeling when you put on shows that there are people who are just like, I want to talk to you and learn about comedy. So this guy, a little strange looking, a little short, something's a little off, but he's like, hey, like, uh, this is so cool what you're doing here. Like, I'm more of a writer, but I'd love to get into comedy. What are your thoughts on this? What are your thoughts on that? And like, even though it's before the show and I'm like worried about 10 other things, I'm giving this guy the time of day. I'm like, maybe I can convert someone here. 
he convinces me to just like let him in for free. Should that was the first uh, red flag, but I was like, you know what, this guy's interested in the comedy community. Let me give him this freebie. So he's super excited, and then thirty seconds into the host set, he just starts heckling the crap out of the host, and I'm sitting there like, what are you thinking, man? You can't wow. you can't lead with the. Uh, <laughs> I want to learn about comedy. Get in for free, and then just be like, and yell heckle? things at the host. Host handled it, shut him down. It was fine, but I was just like trying to figure. I was like, these things don't add up together. Like, what is wrong with you as a human being that just makes you think this is what you're supposed to do? But some people think that. Some people think they're challenging the comedian or helping the show. Yeah, there, I don't know. There, there is a, a kind of a, a meme or vibe out there amongst some people where. That I always found to be strange because I, I guess I had such a, I have such a reverence for comedy mm-hmm. that I, I would, I would never, I would never heckle, I would never do. But some people, I, I think in their mind they think it's almost like the, it's almost like this, the, the, uh, the what the stage before you become a comic or a way to practice or something like that, which is heckling. Because I mean, they're just delusional people who think they, they want the attention in the moment and they are going to take it. <laughs> Well, it's it's interesting because audiences. Do you now? Do you as a when you go to shows, you're an audience member. Yeah. Do you? I, I have a friend who one of the things that I like about him is that he performs stand up comedy and has done so on and off for years. But what I really like is that when he's not performing and he's in the audience, he is a fantastic audience member or audience goer. Yeah, I think right? you have to be. He gives his full attention. He is there with an open mind and open heart to listen. He allows himself to not be easily offended. Mm-hmm. He uh, and it's it's for me. It's actually kind of uh, it's inspiring and motivating to watch that to 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 see him do that because he brings a whole level of energy and commitment to to the role of audience member that I think it can be infectious. What do yeah. you what do you think about that? Yeah, uh, there are a few people in the scene who. I would say just have the best laughs. They don't care if it's funny to them. They're going to laugh out loud. They might laugh at a punchline for like 15 seconds on a show where people are like, but they're having the greatest time. And I love to see it. I think it's super infectious. I wish I could be like that. But I do when I'm an audience member, even when I'm a host at my shows, I try to give the comedian. I try to enjoy the set. Right. Because if I'm sitting there thinking about what I'm going to do in between acts, I'm no longer paying attention to the show. I'm no longer being in the moment. So it's best for me just to sit there and enjoy it. So I do my best. I think the only uh, downside is, I don't know if you've heard Larry David talk about comedy, but he basically is known as a guy where if like somebody says a really funny joke, instead of laughing, he'll be like, that's funny. Yeah. <laughs> and I will say. Yeah, I, I'm known to do that. I'm known to do that where it's like, I deeply appreciate it yeah. and, and I find myself going, that's funny. Right. So I noticed that I think for me to laugh since I'm like a writer comedian guy who like, I really believe in the writing part of the craft. If it's a really great joke or if I see the joke, I will laugh. If you made the punchline clear, I will laugh. If it's really offensive, I'll laugh. If it's really smart. I'll laugh. Like there, I'm giving you a lot now. I'm not giving you everything. But I'm giving you the most I can. Right. Well, now I find sometimes where I will enjoy the show um, quite a bit. Mm-hmm. However, because I have so much experience as a comedian, 
and I've learned a lot about writing and stage performance and all those different sorts of skills that I will be watching those things. Oh yeah. Uh, individually uh, and paying attention to turn off. Well, how's this you guy? Turn it off. Yeah. Like how's this guy moving? How's he blocking? What's yeah. he trying to do here? What's, what's the structure? Oh, look at the structure of that joke, man. That's really interesting. And in the word choice. And so because I'm, I'm paying attention to it in that way as mm-hmm. well. I may not necessarily laugh as often or as hard as many audience members. And sometimes people have mistaken that for me not enjoying the show mm-hmm. when in fact I may actually be enjoying the show even more. Yeah. I mean, everybody enjoys comedy differently. And uh-huh. that's like the way you enjoy it doesn't invalidate how other people enjoy it and how they enjoy it doesn't invalidate how you do it. Right. Yeah. Some people aren't. Yeah. Huge laughers. Some people just want to get the see the connection, the brain churning, and they're like, "Ha that's funny." Or other I, people want to just lose their mind as much as possible by laughing. Yeah, I think that's great. Well, now I I, I remember one time uh, going to this headlining this club in the city in the in the, in the Midwest. I think it was uh, it was Minneapolis, and I did this show, and I thought I was doing really well. Mm-hmm. But I've never heard so much silence in a show in my life. Oof. And I got off stage and I thought, what was that all about? Because I looked out into the audience. And, they were just and usually if the like, audience mm-hmm. is silent, you can also see in their body language and things like that, that they're not having a good time. But in this case, the audience didn't have that body language at all. Hmm. They, were, they actually had kind of like collectively smiles on their faces and sort of a sparkle in their eye and that sort of thing. And then after the show, when I was uh, making my stuff available to the audience who wanted to purchase something after the show, mm-hmm. I had this enormous line of people that came up and were wanting to get an autograph or shake my hand or congratulate me or that kind of thing. And that's not blowing my horn. It's more to just describe that Different I think expectations, that, that right? particular part of the country, that mm-hmm. club, that culture, that time, was. that's just how it went that night. And it was a wonderful lesson for me because... I went on from that realizing that even if I'm not getting the laughs, they still might actually be enjoying it. Yeah. No, I I see that all the time as a person putting on shows that there are some people who are pretty content to just be there, smile, and they might laugh at one out of four jokes versus four out of four jokes. Uh huh. And that doesn't mean they're not having a good time. It can be a little less enjoyable for the comedian because you're questioning yourself a little more on stage when you're not getting the feedback that you want but I think it's important to keep all those factors in mind I mean something that I've realized in the past couple of years is the fact that like audiences get tired they get tired yeah. a yeah. from laughing a lot or b the fact that it's Tuesday night and it's 8 30 and they're usually home already you know so uh and everything right it it's so like the circumstances of the night can be so unique for instance, I uh, this is probably a decent segue into another weird thing that happened. <laughs> so last Thursday, I was at a show, and this is over at Hops and Shine in uh, Delray. We do the late night showcase there every Thursday, nine thirty, and that crowd in particular, kind of uh, on that night, definitely shaded more towards towards like older white conservative, uh-huh. which is interesting because Delray is this area that I think is both the extremes you get some ultra conservatives and some ultra liberals and they're just kind of like hanging out together but separately so uh you know 
I started off the show. I did okay. Did like the best that I could, but I got okay feedback at best. Next comedian went up, did a great job. He probably got the best of the night, maybe. And then uh, comedian after that was like a, a big black dude, and he was just doing comedy that like they didn't relate to at all. And I saw a guy go from laughing and smiling to turning his body away from the performer and just staring at his drink. And that was kind of like how that act went. People were some people were enjoying it, but it kind of like uh, I guess pushed away those older white conservative folks. Huh. They weren't into it. Next comedian went up. She did great. Got nothing. Nothing. Comedian after that was also a black dude. And he was doing his jokes, and somewhere between 15 and 20 people during that set got up and left the room. During that one comic set? During that one comic set. And, like, similar to your situation, I mean, you handled your situation well, right? I didn't know how to react in that situation. Like, I was, like, trying to figure, because in the moment I was confused. I'm trying to figure out what's going on in this show. In my mind, I know I've got three more comedians and a closer and they're all going to do a great job. And these people were having a good time, but they literally just got up and left. And I talked to some folks afterwards and it was like, I think I mentioned this to you. It was like, ah, they were probably like subtly racist. You know, they would never admit they were, but like they didn't want to hear a person that didn't look like them have a different opinion than them, especially if it mildly rubbed them the wrong way and they were just going to get up and leave. So that's all to tell you. That happened. Now there's not a lot of people in the audience. And how many now? How many we're down to now, audience-wise? Like four in the front, two in the back. That's and we, it. And we had like thirty plus from to start. Thirty down to six. Thirty down to like six. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah. And like, just like, man, I can't believe this happened. But now I know. Oh, okay. This is probably the reasons why it happened. This is what I would do differently. But I also think this is just such a unique event that I'm hoping it'll never happen again and I never have to deal with the aftermath. Uh, but anyways, so we're going towards the end of the show and maybe a couple more acts. And obviously the circumstances have changed. You're no longer telling jokes for 30 people. You're telling jokes for like the four people in that room who are having the most fun. And they're right. sitting in the front row. They're having a good time. It inexplicably sucks that those 25 other people left due to unfortunate circumstances. So did they leave in twos and threes and that sort of thing? Or was this a mass mass exodus? It was more so a mass exodus where like everybody was holding hands and like walking out in a single line. So other comedians are going up and like they are getting so many laughs from these four people who are having the time of their life. In my mind, they're killing because these four people are laughing at every joke, every punchline, giving them the time of day. But because those people are now gone and they're maybe getting a little less energy than the room was getting beforehand, they're thinking they're bombing or they're thinking they're doing just okay. Mm -hmm. Uh And I see that a lot. I see, you know, some comedians don't know when they're bombing. Some comedians don't know when they're killing. And although the circumstances were very different and it just became a drastically different show, those comedians were killing. They didn't know it, in my mind. Right, right. Well, there's, it's really interesting, the dynamics between audience and, and stand-up comic. Yeah. Because there are times where you can have a room full of 30 people and uh, not be having a good show. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there's times where you can have four or six people and be having a fantastic show, or vice versa. Oh, yeah. 
Well, so uh, with that said, um, what sorts of things, where are you headed with all of this? So with your career, what do you, what's your vision for yourself and where are you, where are you headed in your, in your mind, in your heart? Yeah. Uh, so basically right now I want to give a look of like where I am and then where I hope to be and how I'm getting there. So right now I'm definitely in the space of being pretty heavy in the room organizing and the room running in the Northern Virginia area, right? Like I'm on pace to probably put on 200 shows this year, which is a lot. My hope is to start, you know, eventually building out my team or building out individuals and have some of these folks take on a decent amount of responsibility at these shows. So A, I don't have to be there. And B, you know, they can start growing their own comedy brands, but they're still like, you know, working for me, whatever. Uh Uh, But finding the right fit, there are some people who I've been talking to who are interested. And I really hope that's the next phase where, you know, I plan to spend a little bit more time in D.C. doing some of like the networking and the chit chatting. And for me, there's very little value to (laughs) for me personally to be at my own open mic. When I could go do a show in D.C. or chat with some people in D.C. and then come back and hit that open mic before it closes. Like that's twice or three times as much value. So that is the plan. And I hope to shift more into like as we've been talking, some of the TV producing stuff. So I would love to get more involved with uh, as we're going to talk about our project in probably a few moments, getting into recording stuff that we're going to put out on local television so doing anything from sketches to live stand-up shows and just really focusing on learning more about how to actually be a tv producer and growing that skill set versus like now i know how to run rooms i know how to hand things off to Uh people uh i want to focus on a couple of rooms right the bus boys room i want to be selling that out every month maybe have a place in dc once a week once a month but I'd rather uh, spend more time here with you, Doc, and uh, do some more of this stuff that's fun. So now when you're you're talking about television producing, that's a project that you and I decided to collaborate on. And uh, I think it's safe for us to, to, to discuss that a little bit. The show is... It's a uh, it's, a, it's a secret. It's now going to go out to everybody. <laughs> oh, the show right now that we're working on is... Uh, the working title is uh, Stand Up at Studio B. Studio B being... Um, the Studio B here at Fairfax Public Access Station, which is a really nice space. There's yep. Studio A, Studio B, and Studio C. And uh, what we uh, well, why don't you just uh, share what uh, what we're working on specifically? Yeah. So basically, what we're working on is producing some live stand-up television shows, where it'll essentially be you know you have your main act, your host, your feature headliner, and an audience comes in, and we record the shoot. We want to make sure that the live portion of the show is really fun for the audience members. So we're going to be bringing in some great acts as well as having a team that's going to be working with us on the production and technical side to really put together and, you know, razzle and dazzle the TV stations, the local ones, and then hopefully someday some network ones. Yeah. Well, I, I, I'm hopeful that uh, Stand Up at Studio B will be a good show that's enjoyed by, by the viewers and, uh, we are looking into even uh, having that show broadcast beyond the the Fairfax Public Access and the local area cable here in Fairfax County and some of the other surrounding care- counties. Yeah. 
there there is actually quite a bit of uh, talented talent or talent number of talented comedians in this area, and I think it'd be wonderful to create a forum for them, uh, a performance space for them to come and to do a three camera shoot. Get a and, really uh, nice get it tape. Out there. Yeah, and do yeah. a good job. I mean, I think it's a thing that the community can get behind and be fun for everyone involved. Seems like a easy win as long as we can pull it off. Yeah, we'll see what happens. Uh, I I also want to ask you if if for anyone who would like to know more about you uh, or about your work beyond what we're doing today, uh, what we've been talking about mm-hmm. today, um, how can people uh, just basically you know. Uh, find out about you they can go to the web yeah so you can go to my website which is sidleystandup.com uh as well as i'm on the instagrams and the twitters at sidley standup that's s-i-d-l-e-y standup and that's pretty much it if you want to send me an email i'm at alan at sidleystandup.com lots of ways to get in touch with me folks Alan Sidley, I want to say thank you for coming in today. Also, I want to invite you to come back in the future. I hope that you will. I hope you had a good time today. I really enjoyed the conversation, and uh, comedy is one of my passions and one of my favorite topics. So um, without further ado, I am going to say thank you to everybody who tuned in today to American Dreamtime. I'm Robert Doc Barham. This was Alan Sidley. We were talking about comedy today, and we'll see you again soon. Hey, it's Mike Aubrey, the real estate expert. I spend a lot of time driving through neighborhoods. Guess what I see? Lost, confused homeowners. There's one now, driving in circles. Hey, pal, need some help? I've been looking for a better mortgage, but I'm not getting anywhere. They're searching and searching for refinancing. But even though they are current on their payments, they just can't find a lower rate or better terms because they're underwater on their mortgages. Talk about getting the run around! But there is one place to look if your mortgage is owned by Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac. Mike, can you get me out of here? Come on, follow me. I've got the answer. H-A-R-P, HARP. It's a government refinancing program that can save you money. See if you qualify at harp.gov. Thanks, Mike. Now we're getting somewhere. Harp.gov, your best route to a better mortgage. Introducing a breakthrough in time management technology. A whole new day of the week. It's called Someday. It's ingenious. Perhaps someday you were going to go skydiving. Enter a hot dog eating contest. Maybe ride a mechanical bull. Now it's on the calendar. You may want to retire someday. Ready for that? Then you'll really want a My Social Security account at socialsecurity.gov. You can estimate your future benefits, plan for your retirement, and how to save for it. If you already receive benefits, you can manage them online. Millions of people already have a My Social Security account. In fact, someone opens one about every six seconds. You should get yours today, because someday is here at socialsecurity.gov.